like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. Sam, if you didn't know, is the administrator, not unlike Paul the Apostle, the executive. This is the one way you're like Paul. Even even remotely. I'm very, am am I a perfectionist? No. Do I like keeping this train bound for glory? Yes. Anyway, we got sick and there was an event. And those things happened together such that we missed launching an episode last week. And uh, Sam feels bad. I feel bad too. Sorry to interrupt your weekly rhythm. Hopefully you uh, read a book or went for a run or something instead of listening to the Ensons podcast. That's certainly not what I did. This week at Ensons, we've just returned from a Ransom Heart event, which was a really incredible experience. And one of the cool things is it's one of the places we interact with you, our listeners. Oh my gosh, I have so many more faces now for people that are listening, which is amazing and super encouraging. Yeah. An interesting thing is how many of you listen to all of the podcasts produced by Ransom Tart, which I do as well. And it's relevant here because our starting point comes out of the Become Good Soil world, which if you're not plugged into, is pretty great stuff predominantly produced by Morgan Snyder and his homies. But I was listening recently, and he had this line, which was, you cannot accurately reflect the character of God without embodying his generosity. It's a good line. It is a good line. It sounds great. I like it, too, because we've mentioned before that generosity means of noble birth, Generosity as an English word, not being what they would use in the Bible, but it's a... But still kind of a cool uh, bit of etymology. It weaves in nicely to go, this is a reflection of who you are. Mm. And so it's prompted us recently into further conversation around becoming a generous person, being a generous person, how ungenerous I actually can be, uh, especially with the resources that I feel, I don't know, most scarce about, which tends to be money, isn't just money. And what we want to sort of explore today on our way into generosity is that generosity is a response to a particular experience of God. And I'm not generous with, uh, let's start with money. Yeah, because it's the obvious one. It's the obvious one. Uh, predominantly because I've realized recently that I'm looking for money to do what knowing God as mother and father is supposed to do. Which I can't say I've ever really thought about, you know, money to me really does invoke the like orphan in me of, I kind of need to keep it, scrounge it, parson it out. My wife and I do the budgeting together, but she ends up doing a lot of like the household, keeping our ship afloat. 
And so I don't end up doing a lot of the spending of it, which is interesting. Money is one of the ways that I see and experience that like orphanness. But uh, we were having a conversation with some folks the other day, um, and they were talking about how they foster kids and have seen a lot of people come through their home. And I could feel two reactions happening inside of me. And one was this part of like, when I hear about a noble cause, there's a part of my heart that rises up and goes, this is what my life should be about now. That's all I do. I'm letting everything else go and I'm going to do this. And we're going to like take care of all of these, these kids. And at the same time, like this sort of two face joker thing also goes, Oh my gosh. Like how do you have the capacity emotionally, financially, with the, the vehicularly, like how do you, how do you how do you manage that? Like all of a sudden, your your margins feel so small, and you do work as well. Like I could feel this poverty thing coexisting with the rise of the this noble part of my heart that wants to do good, and and I it kind of came to a head of like at the end of the day, immobility, right? Because I can't step forward into that with both those things tugging on each other. And the money, the whole money conversation that we keep having is one of those areas that I feel that. It's so good because what is this going to cost me can be a wise question to ask. This is going to cost me too much or I do not have the resources for this on any level is an indicator of the orphaned heart. And how this became clear recently was I was trying to put sort of in a sentence, what is, how can you represent the father's heart for a person? What's it feel like when you know that you have a father, a strength uh, covering your life? And how it came to me recently was just this. The message of the father is, your crisis is not a problem and it can be financial or not, but go, your car just broke down and you're not sure if you have the money to fix it. It's not a problem, son. There's a hole in the roof. It's not a problem. Your dad just got sick in another state. It's not a problem. You just woke up on a Saturday morning that you were hoping to spend by yourself and your wife is sick. And so now you're actually going to do the kids for the weekend and just go, it's not a problem, son. What I feel like I don't have resources for is actually not the end of the story. And where I feel the orphaned art happening, which you were just describing, it kind of came to me this way. This is my one chance to get it. This feeling of I'm barely making it and any shock to the system is going to cause irreparable damage. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I picture it as like this little window into life. If it's a thing that you were looking forward to or expecting, like you were just naming a, a day by yourself or a bike ride or something, I think that ends up feeling very fragile and very precious. And if it gets taken, you're like, well, but that was, that was my, that was my ticket. Why are you taking that away? Or why are you asking more? When I, we talk about generosity, like I love, there was a time in college where I, I was actually a very generous person financially and I would offer to buy people lunch or buy people drinks. And there was just sort of like a, this is what this is for type posture. And I had friends who were very aware of like the crushing amount of debt they were taking on. And so they would like come with a group of friends downtown because they wanted to hang out with people, but they would be like, Oh no, I can't like, I can't buy that $5 burrito. And I just found myself like, 
seeing the orphan playing out there. And there, there are some ways where that's wisdom and no, don't go out to eat all the time. Sure. But that's not what I was talking about in that moment. There was just this sort of, it just felt very fragile. Yes. And I loved the experience of being like, feeling very abundant. I'm like, wait, actually it's going to be fine. And I only have $20, but that's enough for four of us. Like you guys, this is what I have this for. I'm not, if I stick it under a rock, it's not going to do anybody any good. Right. I love your verbal asterisk there just to go. Yes. When you're talking about generosity, both things are true. God is making the wise generous and the generous wise. Those are happening at the same time. And what you're describing is a very clear understanding of what your season is for and how to use your resources to align with it, where it goes building key relationships, inviting people into a deeper knowledge of God. And part of it looks like not being terrified that you're going to slow down paying your debt off. And now again, the generous wise and the wise generous, but there's just a story for me that really embodies this and it's after college. Actually, if you listen to the Ransom Chart podcast or have been for a number of years, you'll already know this story, but I was working at a climbing gym. I was parking on a side street in kind of a sketchy area of town because you didn't have to pay for parking on that side street. If you park in a back alley. Exactly. No parking meters. Also, no security cameras because on two separate occasions, the windows were uh, sort of smashed in in my car. I feel like there's a maxim about that. Something about fool me once. Yeah. I don't, care. I don't remember how it goes. Though. I don't remember how yeah. it goes either. Anyway, the first time, windows broken and uh, my climbing gear, my trad rack, was in the back of the car. It gets stolen. And I come out, realize this. And, oh my gosh, not only is a trad rack extremely expensive to put together. We're talking... A couple thousand dollars. And For it you takes listeners who don't know what a trad rack is. Traditional climbing. They're all of these little pieces that allow climbers to climb up a sheer face. Some walls have like bolts been placed into them by previous climbers with drills and they just can clip on. A trad rack is for like wedging things in cracks and around little precipices and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's a good definition. And it can be very expensive to have a varied set of gear to fit this yeah it's kind of like your tools where it's a lot like your tools. when you start building it you know a toolkit you realize oh my gosh my dad spent 25 years acquiring tools and that's why he had a workbench full of them and a that's hammer why. and a phillips i know i've got like two wrenches exactly. and a circular saw that i borrowed so my climbing gear's gone it's really expensive and it also embodies adventure after adventure with my dad and with friends it was this it's this irreplaceable thing which is a rep an embodied history and i'm i'm crushed beyond crushed go home uh next day get buddy's motorcycle running borrowed uh go on a ride go up to the top of this mountain where i know there's kind of an overlook where i can just be with god and I kid you not, I'm at the end of the paved road, all the way up this dirt road to where there's sort of a, I don't know, maybe a cell tower at the top of this mountain surrounded by a chain link fence. I'm nearby, sitting in the woods, I just try inviting God to come into some of the disappointment and also trying to think through, man, how am I going to do this? Because technically that was my dad's climbing gear and I don't have the money and 
all of a sudden, this UPS truck pulls up. A UPS truck. Middle of nowhere. Pulls up next to the motorcycle I was riding and starts to walk around it. And I come out of the woods, realizing I look very sketchy, wondering if I need to explain to this guy that I was spending time with the uncreated God. And he kind of looks up and with just an expression that I would describe as the father's expression, like uh, unconcerned, interested in what's going on. And he points to the motorcycle and goes, 1972, right? And I go, yeah. And he goes, man, it looks like you're missing part of the fairing. And I go, yeah, that piece has been missing forever. And he goes, you know, I, I got a bunch lying around. Why don't I give you my phone number? And this is, this is on the level of the miraculous. Yeah, it's crazy. Of this guy gives me his phone number. He drives away. And I cannot communicate the shift that happened in my heart after experiencing the assurance of the father's like lack of concern about the crisis going. And it was, oh, hey, it looks like your motorcycle's a little beat up. We can fix that. It's not a problem. And also, you lost your climbing gear? That's it's not a problem, son. And actually, within the year, a dear friend called and said, I've been praying and I really think God wants me to replace your guys' climbing gear. And it, it was unbearable, actually, too, because it was at a season in that man's life that I knew he had uh, you know, less money available than at any other time, maybe. And yet what God was calling him to do was to express the father's heart to our family by restoring our climbing gear to us. It was like, it was physically painful. Right. But because he's walking out of an assurance of God will take care of me and God taking care of me doesn't always mean you get the things that were stolen back. Sometimes it might just be an invitation to give more. And so the generosity that that posture of the, of the father's heart towards you of nothing being too big, isn't prosperity gospel. It isn't, Hey, well, you're going to get all your bills paid and all your new cars and all that kind of stuff. It's this answer to a question. Do you think that there is actually something too big for God to handle? Like to that orphan that goes, this is now gone. That is lost forever. God doesn't really care for me. I ask you little part of my own heart as well. Do you think something's too big for him? Is there something that he can't address or speak to or handle? Yeah. It's kind of an embarrassing like, question, man. Really? Because yeah. I mean, the answer is no. Can you feel that shift of, Oh, like, wow, I can actually pursue the father heart of God there, which says, yeah, I've got this. Yes. You are going to be well. Yeah. It's huge. I can think of, just one more example. If you uh, are someone who is married <laughs> or in even in a relationship, uh, you'll have realized that the heart of your wife and or significant other is infinitely, infinitely more complex and demanding than you forecasted. Whatever you anticipated, you were off. <laughs> I was off. <laughs> and I can just say that in the past year, it's just been remarkable to watch God begin an excavation of my wife's heart, opening it up in ways that I just thought she was just great. And then God goes, okay, it's time for a deeper pass. And so I'm back in the territory of, oh my gosh, 
each kind of new conversation, I really have, I just don't know what to do. I, I'm like, I, I'm here. I'm asking questions. I'm listening to you. I'm asking another question. And I don't know where this is supposed to land. I don't know what you're supposed to do with this part of your story. I don't, I don't see the end. I don't have an answer for you. I can't give it a nice little ribbon. Right. I have no ribbon, but I can keep engaged. I can keep relating to you. Mm. And the only reason I can keep relating to you is because of this uh, process of experiencing the father that we're talking about here, which is, oh, your wife is opening up a whole new level of her heart to which Blaine, you are completely inadequate. It's not a problem. It's not. You know, it's not a problem and go, wow, that is super important because as soon as it becomes, I am on my own and I don't know what to do, then it turns into a, how do I button this up or stop this conversation as quickly as possible or refer her to a professional and not talk about it again? Oh man. Okay. So I I am so struck by, I've had seasons in my life that have been very full and seasons in my life that have been very spacious with commitments and with obligations. And I have experienced a level of exhaustion in both of them and an experience of energy in both of them. And it's actually, the common denominator isn't, well, I just need less things or I need less burden or I need like a little bit more cushion in the bank account or just less social engagement. The common denominator of operating with energy in life seems to be when I'm in a season that God is inviting and sort of orchestrating what's on the plate. I think at a basic human level, I'm more inclined to try and clear things and make more space because like quiet time is really what I need and introversion and having those little like times when no other human beings are around. But I can be totally exhausted in those seasons if it's just like orchestrated by me because then that sentence, the fuel in the engine is this is up to you and you got to get this. And it's going to be too much if you don't. And the same is true for the busy seasons. If it's like, okay, well, I'm really happiest when I've got a lot of projects going on. Well, if I'm the one orchestrating them, oh my gosh, I can just run myself totally ragged. And so it doesn't seem to be whether it's full or empty or spacious or what. It seems to be um, I have space and energy and that generous spirit when I'm operating in what God is calling me to do in a season and they don't always look the same. Yeah. That's so good. Basically for me, if the father's involvement is not an experienced reality for me, generosity is painful. (laughs) Okay. An important next part of this conversation as we move towards being generous and ways that I fail to be generous is God is mother, which I actually, I think is even deeper to the heart than God is father. Uh, Remarkable though that may be. And just go, oh man, I love someone again that Morgan turned me on to, uh, but biblical scholar Cyrus Schofield talks about God as the two-breasted one, the El Shaddai, which is usually translated as almighty God. But oh my gosh, the number of things that are shockingly mistranslated, uh, it's, it's painful when you begin to learn about them and go, you have been 
painting over the treasures of the gospel for hundreds of years? How dare you? How dare you let your fear of what this will mean to humanity like make you defang the Song of Songs, make you defang the El Shaddai, which Shad, like... But, okay, hang on, hang on. You could keep going in there for a long time. And basically everyone I know that has done any deeper levels of study has this reaction. Right. You there go. is this, I have had a great wrong done to me by w- people's translations and omissions and sort of smudgings of what these things are. Yeah. Oh, good. As is very justified. A recent example being the dear God, how in the NIV, especially uh, the other spiritual beings, the angels and demons, when they're referred to as gods, the NIV translators puts it in scare quotes, gods, which complete, it makes it 100% confusing what the speaker is talking about. And it just goes, yeah, well, because we've been scared about going the universe is populated with spiritual beings. The Hebrews didn't have like a name to differentiate the uncreated God from the spiritual beings, so they used the same word. The difference was the name, and they knew that there was only one uncreated God. I can refer you all to the Bible Project podcast where I'm learning all this. But back to back the to breasted, the breasted one. one, the one who is like as a mother comforting her child. Cyrus Schofield, his line. If we missed this and say that the El Shaddai is Almighty God instead of the breasted one, that we lose the significance of God revealing himself as the source of our pleasure, security, rest, peace, and the nourishment that robust femininity was meant to provide. And you go, what? For me, I frame this as we're asking the mother the heart of the mother, does anyone see my need? Yeah, right. Like, let's get all current day politics, let's get all the trendy things that we say about God off the table and go, what does your heart do with the need for a mother and God's meeting of that need? Right. Oh my gosh. It's a crazy thing to go, does anyone see my need? And go, not just nourishment, but also comfort. Even Jesus identifies, uses this motherly language of, I've longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks and you are not willing. It's just remarkable to go, God, the triune God, is ready to meet the heart's need for mothering and we are resistant to it or afraid of it. And this gets exposed in me in the places where Like I feel mad if comfort is denied or, and again, money is a helpful indicator. It can be as simple as coming back from a long weekend, maybe even we're coming back from an event and I feel like my resources are depleted and, you know, it's late and I'm in there thinking, oh, why don't we just grab dinner on the way in? And then all of a sudden, monetarily, I go, oh, you know, we maxed that. Nope. And something happens in me that's deeper than the budget being full. Something happens that is no to comfort. And yes, those things get conflated, but there's real care that my heart needs, that God wants to provide, that I'm sort of regularly shutting myself off to simply by believing and operating out of belief. It's just me. This is my chance. 
There's not comfort. There's just rules that I'm falling short of. And one more story here. The last time that I like cried at the kitchen table over resource provision was $12. And the reason wasn't that we needed $12 to pay some bill. It was this whole story of like I had given away in the season we were saving for down payments. So we were ultra tight fisted. Someone had given me a gift card that I felt like I was supposed to give it to someone else. So I just handed it off. But I was kind of like, man, think of all those comforting lattes you won't have. And yes, they're lattes, but it would be easy to just downplay, downplay, downplay a legitimate avenue by which the comforting of God could express itself and give it away. Eight months go by and I'm borrowing someone's car and they go, hey, the keys are on my desk. Help yourself to any of the gift cards that are in the center console. And I open it and it's literally the same gift card, except there's three of them. Hmm. And it was just this truly piercing penetration of the specific love of God into a specific area of need that was so small. I can just kind of, you know, minimize it and laugh at it and go gift card, but go someplace in my heart wanted the nourishing of God. And when God managed to bring it back in. It like leveled me on a deep plane. Yeah, it's so huge. Um, For those of you scratching your head and wondering how the mother heart of God connects to generosity, these are places from which you then can operate out of, right? Like this is something that is being met the same way that the father heart says, nothing is too much. The mother heart says, you will be taken care of at at a deep comfort soul level umami for your heart is going to be cared for. And from there you can operate and be this person that you're not operating from like, I must give everything away. I must, I must be scarce. I must kind of live in this ascetic lifestyle because that's what generosity is. It's like, you can actually be tremendously well and operate from that. It's crazy. Yeah. It's just, and I know people who are generous and the, the mothering and fathering of God is still coming online for them. But for sure, not knowing God as father, not knowing God as mother, not pursuing that as a deep reality is in the way of generosity. Right, right. Because otherwise it's obligation, right? Like if you're doing the tithe thing, which is really one of the first ways that the financial generosity comes to mind. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, the 10% thing. Like we're very, we do that. And then we kind of, every time money comes in, we're making sure that money's going out. And the C.S. Lewis thing gets sort of anecdotally thrown around of it should always kind of hurt. Otherwise you're not really giving enough. That's all well and good, but that can become very obligatory type generosity. And when you think of a generous person, don't you want them as your friend? Don't you want to like be around them? Because you have all of their attention if you're in their presence and they feel so stable and vast. You're like, wait, I could talk about fostering with you. Or I could talk about this new book project with you, or I could talk about an adventure or finding Like it doesn't matter. Whatever the topic is with this imaginary person, they're stable and they're vast. They're not necessarily a, like just a person that checks the rules and the obligation boxes. Yes. So we're talking about a few things that need to be online in the cultivation of a generous heart. And we just need to, I do want to pause on the tithe, tiny cul-de-sac here and go, OMG, 
the kindness of the tithe. And let me just tell you, if you, like me, go, it's a dusty term for an old covenant principle. Well, there's, uh, let's say, watchman knees <laughs> has this quote on it. Oh my gosh, that's, I'm looking forward to have it in my notes somewhere, but he just goes, yeah, the tithe in the world we're operating is actually still a relevant conversation simply because it falls short of the radical generosity that we are invited into and becomes an expectation. Where the tithe comes in is this rescue of God. First time, Abram's coming back. Abram, who's going to become Abraham? Lot has been captured. There's this battle. And he wins. Great military victory. He's coming back. Right away, God intervenes through this priest to go give some of it away. And then ditto Isaac, ditto Jacob, ditto the liberation of Israel. And what I just see is God not letting a person wander off into the dark territory of this is mine and I have provided for myself because pride is not going to be the ultimate issue there. The ultimate issue there is forgetting or losing sight of God as your nourisher. Because as soon as you go, this is mine, gosh, if it's up to you, that is a the doom track for the heart. But to go, God just goes, give some of it away. Give some of it away. We get scholarly deep in here, but when he doesn't give the Levite tribe, the priesthood tribe, any land, doesn't give them an inheritance. They don't have a place in the portioning out of the promised land after the Exodus. What he's saying to everybody else is, you will not be able to forget who gave this to you because you're constantly giving in response to the presence of God living among you. And it's this reminder of your source of life that when they forget it, the issue is always an issue of heart. And we have all these examples of what looks like God being angry because the offerings weren't done appropriately. But his concern is always, you have not sought me with your whole heart. Your failure to give is an indication that your hearts are far from me. And that is his ultimate concern. In this conversation of generosity, we have to frame the tithe as God's pursuit of and deliverance of a person from a mindset that ultimately leads to abandonment. One other thing to get online in generosity, and this is new for me, very cool, and huge shout out to the Bible Project podcast. They have a series on the identity of God that's fantastic. There's one episode that's about God's fusion with humanity, and they look at the character of Moses, and they go, watch the way that God, with very few exceptions, works by partnering with a person. And when the book of Exodus is ramping up, the deliverance of Israel is imminent, God makes these statements, I will save, I'll rescue, I'm going to you know, wrestle my people out of the hands of the Egyptians. Now, Moses, you go do it. And there's just this, wait, what? I thought you said you were going to go do it. Moses shows up. The plagues are about to start. God is going to turn the Nile River into blood through Moses. So there's this line. And if you're reading the text, it'll read like, then Yahweh said to Moses, take the staff that is in your hand, raise it, strike the waters of the Nile, and all of the water around Egypt will be turned to blood. And the next line is, he took the staff and raised it and struck the water. The he is Yahweh took this Yahweh took Yahweh's staff and raised it over Yahweh's head. And you go, wait, 
isn't Moses doing those things? And go, yes, but he is so submitted to and aligned with the will of God, the mission of God, that in their partnership, it's become indistinguishable, which OMG, does this forecast having God living inside you? It's narratively significant enough. If you were an Egyptian on the boat, on Pharaoh's boat, you would have been like, oh, there's Moses here with his irritating demands. And there he is again. And oh my gosh, that is all of a sudden God expressing himself through a person, raising the staff and hitting the water and blood. And you just go, wow. So when we're talking about generosity, we're also talking about God partnering with humans to do his mission, which is because he's committed, as C.S. Lewis identifies, to filling the universe with people who are like him, filling the universe with his image, with people who are like him, who are able to rule. And so, yeah, God is being playful with people, resourcing his mission, rescuing the poor, pursuing the beauty. And usually... (laughs) A lot of the time, he's doing that through people that love him and are walking deeply with him. It just changes the way that I think of giving when I go, oh my gosh, this could be partnering with the playfulness of God who's pursuing this person, but the way he's doing it right now is through me giving to a pastor or dropping a latte off at a coworker's desk or whatever it is, or asking someone how much debt they have and then writing them a check for $2,000 being like, this is a radical concept. Yeah. It's so good, Blaine. I found myself getting all pumped about generosity in human terms because I see like my tombstone, which is often kind of a morbid way of motivating myself. And I think of the story that people will say, like Sam was a generous person makes me go like, oh, that's so awesome if people would say that versus Sam was really good at protecting his time and finding margins to keep his heart alive. It's like, what is that? That sucks. But that's my very human motivation for becoming generous. And I love what you're calling us to in that, like that is becoming God and God-like in this world and, and getting to operate and walk in that in the ways that that was true of David, the way that that's true of the way that Jesus would speak. I and the father are one and the way that he would move. And you're like, Oh wait, when those become indistinguishable, like I was thinking of generosity purely as how much I like the human beings that are like that and how much more of a call then is it when it's something that God is wanting us to be and do because it is what his heart is. 